What is a galaxy? In short, it's kind of an island of stars. Well, more like an enormous continent, really. A ginormous fellowship of uncountable suns. Galaxies are inconceivably huge beyond our comprehension, hundreds, thousands, or even hundreds of thousands of light years across, with one light year being nearly six trillion miles. And our universe is filled with galaxies, all kinds of shapes and sizes, each with their own peculiar characteristics and personalities. In 1995, near the handle of the Big Dipper, the Hubble Space Telescope imaged a very small blank spot of sky, unveiling 3,000 never-before-seen galactic diadems. In 2004, Hubble aimed at another tiny blank spot of sky in the constellation of Fornax, the furnace, and uncovered a buried treasure of some 10,000 galaxies of all kinds of colors, shapes, and sizes never before seen by human eyes. These remarkable discoveries, along with research published in 2016 by NASA, bring to mind just how staggeringly large and unknown our universe really is. The 2016 research estimated that our universe contains upwards of two trillion galaxies. Let that sink in. So what is the universe really like? We have no idea, and that's okay. Well, we have a little inkling of an idea, a few hints and some remarkable suggestions. But it seems the more we discover, the less we know and the more mysterious the universe becomes. Each new discovery often calls into question many previous taken-for-granted assumptions. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not master it. But it is a truth that none of these spectacular discoveries in any way contravene anything found written in the pages of the Bible. Nothing. In fact, images of these fantastical distant island universes from the Hubble Space Telescope have only further confirmed that the heavens do indeed declare the glory of God. And part of that glory means we are simply not going to know everything we'd like to know. According to scripture, the light in the universe was created and is sustained by Jesus himself, the light of the world in John 8:12, and the bright and morning star of Revelation 22:16. 16. 
The bigger and more fantastic the revelations of our magnificent universe become, the more powerful, sovereign, glorious, and incomprehensible the fullness of Jesus becomes to us as believers. So be encouraged. Christ's revelation is always counter to the prevailing ideologies of the times. Many secular models of the universe, for example, are constructed without any reference to Jesus or his glory. So what is a biblical, Christ-centered way of viewing the amazing and unusual discoveries in our universe? How do they point to the glory of God? What relevance do enormous and often wonderfully strange galaxies have for our own lives? Come and see on this fantastical episode of Good Heavens. Good heavens. Good heavens, Wayne. We almost didn't get a podcast in for September. This is our two-year anniversary. Here we are. Two years. Two years. Of it's podcasting. Been, it's been good, Dan. Yeah. We started at a, a, a studio back in uh, Plano, and then we graduated to uh, this Blue Yeti. These microphones are great. Yes, they are very good. They're super cool. So now we are portable, and we are in our favorite studio. Bonjourno in South Lake, Texas, That's right. having coffee and talking about astronomy. I saw over there at the, uh, there's a table behind us with an old book, an old black and white book. It said, Cafe and Stars. <laughs> That's us, right? That's us. Yeah. But it was talking about uh, Hollywood stars, yeah. of course. But I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Cafe and stars. Yeah, Here we are. It's, that's our podcast. Yeah, we, I could live in a coffee shop and talk about the universe all day long. Yeah. Uh, so we better get on this or we will be here all day. Yeah. This is uh, part two. Uh, we're going to be talking about some, of course, we can't cover everything there is to know about galaxies in an hour. Um, but we are going to talk about some unique galaxies and some unique features in our own galaxy. Our own galaxy turns out to be stranger than we imagined. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things, and they're just discovering new things recently that we, they never knew about and, our galaxy. Uh, you, you gave me a heads up that our galaxy is really weird, weirder than we think. It, it makes things. Yes. It does things, and we're going to talk about yeah, that in just a minute. We'll get to that. Yeah, so hang on for that. <laughs> what did Wayne discover in our own Milky Way? <laughs> He found something. Not more than a swallow's flight away. Wayne discovered something. Yes. Yes. All right. So, uh, but we want to start off, as we always try to do, uh, with some scripture. Wayne, you have some. We're going to be in the book of Job this morning. Yeah. Job chapter 9 is a very interesting thing. And this is uh, Job speaking. Of course, he had a lot of difficult suffering he had to deal with. Yeah. And uh, so he was talking about God here. And he says, he speaks to the sun, and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. That's awesome. I have just, uh, just this past... Uh, uh, spring and now uh, here in the fall I'm learning the names of the Pleiades stars mm-hmm. so I go out and I look at them and I try to name them and so I've got them all down all the six visible stars it's pretty cool I got Atlas Alcyon Merope Electra Maia and Tagata and uh, yeah. uh, I've said in the book and I've said it probably a thousand times on the podcast maybe but uh, that the Pleiades is on the symbol of the uh, Subaru car 
yes. the stars on the Subaru. So if you have a Subaru, congratulations. You are uh, the bearer, the light bearer of a very ancient asterism, a collection right. of little and stars. When we see uh, the Pleiades, they're known as being seven stars, mm-hmm. but there's a lot more than seven. Oh, yes. It's a star cluster, uh, what they call an open star cluster. Yeah. Most people think, when you look at it, I did as a kid for the longest time, it looks like a little scoop, a little cup, like an Amazon.com shopping basket <laughs> okay. or something. Um, but most people think, if you're not familiar with stars or you don't see stars that often, uh, you see this and you're like, oh, the little dipper. Like, mm-hmm. No, no, it's the Pleiades because you can tell Orion, Taurus, and the Pleiades, uh-huh. the, the little dipper is looking northward. But anyway, it looks like a little basket, a little basket of blue stars, and you can see six from the ground. I don't know how we got on the Pleiades. Well, you mentioned it here, and I was just on a... Well, I think it's one of the most beautiful oh, pictures. Oh, my gosh. A good close-up picture of the Pleiades. Pleiades is oh, one of my favorite pictures. It is, it pictures. is wonderful. Yeah. And uh, Job... It's mentioned again. I'm going to read another verse in Job where it's mentioned twice. So this is one of the oldest star cluster, star uh, star asterisms on record. Yeah, and maybe the oldest book in the Bible. The oldest book in the Bible is Job, we think. Um, but uh, I went back to uh, ancient Greek uh, references, and then in the poem uh, Eratus or Eratus, the poet that Paul quotes in Acts 17 when he's, you know, the hymn to Zeus. Okay. Paul borrows from that, as some of your own poets have said. Uh-huh. Well, Aratus in his hymn to Zeus mentions the Pleiades, and that's 3rd century B.C. And then Hesiod uh, is 8th century, a contemporary of Isaiah perhaps, also mentions the Pleiades. Homer in the Iliad mentions the Pleiades mm-hmm. when he's talking about the shield of Hephaestus that's forged for Achilles. Uh, on the shield of Achilles is the Pleiades. Uh, so, so that's been around forever. The stars have been around forever. Constellations ha- have been known from time immemorial. And at least going as far back to the 3rd and maybe even the 8th century, the names of the Pleiades, stars, have been pretty much what they are today. Which is yeah, the constellation names are very ancient names. Oh, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how we... I could spend all day talking about the Pleiades, but we were talking about galaxies today. We almost forgot. Yes. So I owe some scripture here. Um, from Job, in the latter half of Job. Now, you said God, Job was speaking in chapter 9. I have God finally speaking to Job after Job's been through a lot of trials. God shows up in a whirlwind okay. and says, uh, you know, put on the man pants. I have some questions for you. <laughs> and uh, so one of them is Job chapter 38, verse 19. God asks Job, where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home. And then in the same chapter 38, verse 31, God asks, Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? So that goes right back to the question of Job. Uh, Job's mention of the bear and the Pleiades and the Orion. God is now asking Job, By the way, since you mentioned it, can you guide these things? You know, mm-hmm. you've talked about them, yes. but let me ask you a question. Can you make them go? Mm-hmm. Can you influence their courses, right? Uh, do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Of course, mm-hmm. if God asked any of us that question, <laughs> the answer would be no. <laughs> These are divine rhetorical questions, yeah. uh, which leads me to the one, one verse in, uh, in the New Testament that I want to read, and we'll get into galaxies right here. Uh, this will all fit together. It has a purpose. I promise, John talking about Jesus as the light, and the light shines in the darkness. Of course, John goes back to the beginning, 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what did God say when he first created things? Let there be light. light. And there's lots of light. There you go. But uh, John 1.5 says, the light shines in the darkness, uh, and the darkness did not comprehend, understand, or master. There's a Greek word there that you could mm. interpret as comprehend, or master, or Overcome. Overcome, yeah. So basically, the best word I've heard for it is the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not master mm-hmm. the light. We didn't figure it out. We didn't conquer it. We didn't fully explain it. We don't know what's going on for sure. Right. Um, and so that is absolutely fitting to what we're about to talk about because there's some light shining in the darkness of deep, deep in the cosmos, and we are still scratching our semi bald heads about what all that is right even here in our home our home galaxy which we're so used to we think is normal because we're here right it's a normal galaxy but wayne right our galaxy is more like a chapter out of lord of the rings isn't it there's many mysteries of our our, our about our own galaxy and uh there's a new um satellite a new spacecraft that is called gaia gaia yes that is uh measuring a lot of interesting things in our galaxy and scientists are learning interesting stuff let's talk about kind of the anatomy of a galaxy a little bit yes last time we talked about spiral galaxies and bar spirals mm-hmm. and our galaxy is is looks like it's a barred spiral galaxy so <clears throat> the bar is a straight strip of stars that goes through the center of the galaxy and the spiral arms come off the end of the bars. Mm-hmm. And uh, they spiral around. So uh, there's waves and ripples and things like this that happen in the galaxy. So you're talking about, let's, let's go back a, a different kind of a visual. So you have somebody like, a, I remember the baton twirler in, in band, right? Yeah. They, sometimes they have streamers on the end of their batons. They twirl, right. the, they twirl the baton. Yeah, it's like that. And the streamers on the end kind of take on a, a spiral kind of that's thing. That's right. Yeah. yeah, so that's a barred spiral. So, uh, But there's a lot of nuclear reactions, to put it mildly, that go on in the heart of a galaxy, whether it's a spiral or a bard or some of these irregular ones we'll talk about. There's a lot of energy right. going on. In the galaxy, so if you're you're saying if basically like if you drop a rock into a pond, right, you cause the the energy of that rock impact radiates as a wave through the water, right. So something like that is what you're saying is going on in our Milky Way that there's energy radiating through the dust and the gas and the stars, correct? Right. So the uh, the stars become kind of like a um, something floating on the pond. That is getting carried along by the waves. Yes. Uh, if something happened, uh, now the our galaxy is a spiral disk. So there's a big bulge in the center. There's the bar. Then there's the spiral arms that make the flattened disk. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but there's also what's called the galactic halo around it, which is like a big ball of gas. So it's, it's bigger than the galaxy, and it's not shaped like the galaxy. It's not a disc shape. No. It's a spherical area of, of gas and plasma. What is plasma? Plasma is gas that is heated up so hot 
It's ionized. Ionized. Yes. And it also can glow if it's hot enough. So what do we mean by ionized gas? What happens to the molecules of gas? That What is the ionization that we're talking about? What's that mean? Well, it's, the gas has lost some of its electrons. Okay. And so it conducts electricity. So if there's... And it's also affected by magnetic fields, and uh, a, a galaxy would have a magnetic field. And the galactic halo would be the sphere of the ball that you could look inside and see. Or they see. may call it a gas halo. A gas halo, uh, uh, all that gas. And, uh, and the, there can be stars that are kind of stragglers that are, go outside most of the galaxy, kind of a little unusual, and they may go a little farther out than the others. So there's kind of straggler stars around it. In that halo, maybe so there's sometime. a there's a galactic plane. In other yeah. words, there's a certain thickness to the galaxy. And a galaxy, if you look at a galaxy edge on, it's relatively flat, right? In, in a traditional sense. So a lot of these stars that we're going to be talking about, a lot of these phenomena that go on, go on inside the disk, right? Uh, the plane, the galactic plane, correct? Right. And but there are things that can happen outside the disk, and this gets interesting because our galaxy has other smaller clusters uh, in and around it. So, yeah. so one of the things uh, it's kind of unique about our galaxy is what's called the large and small Magellanic clouds. I love those things. I you, wish we could see them in you, the northern hemisphere. You can't see them from Texas. No, you can't. Uh, you, you have to be in the southern hemisphere, but they're really galaxies. They're compact galaxies. And uh, so there, there's also other kinds of smaller clusters of stars that are called globular clusters. Yes, and those are beautiful objects to see in a telescope. And if you look up and you can see the Milky Way at night, most of these that are in our Milky Way, there's there's several hundred of them, or a hundred or so. There's a hundred. Uh, our galaxy is thought to have like something like 150 or 160. And basically, they are beehives of stars, just yeah. just condensed little beehives. They're very dense clusters. Yeah, of and, a, and most of these suns. Like my two favorites, I've seen uh, the, my favorite one is, is easy, and it's up at night. If you have binoculars or a small telescope, you can see it. The uh, great globular cluster of stars in Hercules. I have a big enough telescope where I can see the distinction of the different stars in this cluster. Mm-hmm. There's 300,000 stars clustered together in the Hercules cluster. Wow. And then earlier this summer, before it set in the southern hemisphere, you can barely see it from Texas, uh, if you have a good telescope, is the Omega Centauri cluster, hmm. and that has 10 million suns in it. That's, wow. that's supposed to be the biggest cluster, I think, in the Milky Way. But anyway, these things are, all, are, are buzzing all over our galaxy. Right, so the globular clusters would often orbit around the center of the galaxy. The black hole, Sagittarius and, and there's A. A. There's a big black hole in the center of the galaxy. It's called Sagittarius A, right? Yes. So... Uh, around that bulge in the center, there's a lot of activity of these globular clusters kind of buzzing around it. So the, the black hole is like the queen bee, and the, the globular clusters are like the worker bees. Right, and then this. <laughs> I like that analogy. So um, now let's talk about star streams. Okay, so uh, all right. So the, the cool thing, the weird thing, the neat thing, one neat thing about our galaxy is the, the globular clusters. Now, just let me throw this in there really quickly. There are also things called open clusters, where yes. they're like strings of pearls or strings of Christmas lights, and you can see by their intrinsic right. brightness that they're kind of grouped together. And if you have a big telescope, you can see these. I love looking at these things. I point my telescope, and I just run it through the Milky Way, and it's just looking like jewelry. It just looks like necklaces after necklaces of stars just running in a trail. It's beautiful. But these are open 
star clusters as opposed to the squished together globular clusters. Yeah. So now you're going to blow us away with some star streams in our this is our Milky Way again. Right? Yes. So what are these things? Star streams are like um, uh, stars that are strung along a path, uh, often a circular path. So. Uh, this is kind of similar to meteors, Dan. Okay. We have meteor showers that we right. that we know about. They're scheduled. We know when they happen. They happen at certain times of the year, right? Why is it scheduled like it? Why is it periodic when we know when it's going to happen? It's because uh, there are asteroids not far from Earth's orbit, and, and uh, there are small rocks and small objects that get scattered along the orbits of these asteroids. So an Earth comes along and passes through that orbit or passes nearby it. We see the shooting stars. And so stars. Earth sort of pulls in these small objects. Yeah. So it happens at a known time because of these orbits of the We asteroids. know when we're in the tail of a comet or, or an asteroid. Or a comet. Yeah. It could be a comet. Right. So these objects are scattered along the orbit. Well, that's kind of like what happens with star streams. Stars can be scattered along the path of something that went that direction. Okay. So something could have passed through the galaxy and pulled stars with it. Maybe a big star and it pulled other stars with it and they, they form a stream. So these stars are like a connected, like something went whoosh yeah. through the galaxy and the stars were like, hey, follow that. You know, the, the gravitational, right. the, the, the forces at work pull a string of stars along with it. Now, one of these star streams for our galaxy was being studied by scientists recently, and they discovered something strange. One of these star streams kind of starts close to the edge of our galaxy, and it goes up in a big loop, and there's a section of this star stream that's got a big gap in it where there's almost no stars. Wow. And along the edge of the galaxy is a kind of thin zone where there's not many stars. And so the scientists are really puzzled by this because it looks like something sort of pulled a lot of the stars out. Okay, so this... What this, happened to the stars? What happened to the stars? So this string looks like it might be associated with the, with the uh, low volume of stars in the, in the edge of the galaxy. Yeah, because the, the if you follow that trail of stars, it goes comes back, right out of that hole. goes back to this hole. Wow. So they, they've seen things like this before. Uh-huh. So they will, do, they will do things like this. They'll say, well, maybe there's a large star that passed through the, <laughs> the edge of the galaxy, but this is so big that they don't, they don't know of any star big enough. Wow. And anywhere, any, any star big enough wow. to do this. Wow. So it's like somebody stuck their finger in the cake. Something caused this hole. Right. That, that for, there's no known object that we know of that could have caused this right. hole. Right. But there it is. It looks like something went through it, pulled it out. And Here, here's a ridiculous example. Maybe God just took his finger and went, whoosh. Just let's, put just, his, let's mess up the court. Let's just, just to, give the scientists something to think about. Artistic license. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to do something just to mess with him. God was being ornery. Watch this. I'm going to put a hole there and freak him out. <laughs> he can do that. He can, he can do that if he wants. Absolutely, Absolutely can do that. We have our pet theories, and along comes God's finger and goes, whoosh. <laughs> Figure that out. That's right. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. You've okay. only been to the moon, you know. That's right. Get so. back to me when you've done some interstellar traveling, please. Okay, Dan, here's another interesting thing. Yeah, you told me. Now, this gets, now uh, did you know that galaxies can make sausage? Uh, not until this morning. You... Uh, <laughs> You just told me that. 
Okay, uh, I know I'll... you can get sausages here in Texas, but I didn't think the Galaxy made them. That's right. Well, okay, let me try to explain this. Do uh, explain. So um, there's we we talked about the Gaia satellite. Yeah. And there's something they call the Gaia sausage. So it's not on a menu in a barbecue in Texas. This is no, this is hard science right here. No, but the, <laughs> some some uh, restaurant in Texas would probably do well to, That'd to be start great. something like a Lone Star reference uh, restaurant with that's a right. Gaia Put sausage. Put stars in astronomy and sausage <laughs> together. It sounds good to me. I'm going to do it. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> All right, food so. and stars, <laughs> coffee and stars. That's all okay. I'm so the real thing is uh, <coughs> the Gaia satellite found uh, some stars that are kind of mixed into our galaxy and their velocities are different from other stars. And so what they think would happen is a, a small galaxy sometime in the past uh, collided with our galaxy. So our galaxy is the big galaxy in comparison to this one. There was a smaller galaxy and it, if the galaxy was coming close toward our galaxy, the size of ours and the smallness of that one would make the small galaxy distorted and kind of stretched out. So it might look in kind of a sausage shape uh-huh. as it collides with the galaxy. And then when it when it, this was a small compared to our galaxy, so when it when it struck the our galaxy, the stars get sort of all scattered around. Yeah, like marbles. So it did, it wasn't able to pass through. Instead, it just got mushed up got absorbed <laughs> but it's interesting they'll posit the, the collision here but you're saying that these is a group of stars like salmon swimming upstream they're going the other direction some of them are going the opposite direction of the galaxy and some of them sort of apparently kind of bounce back wow when they struck our stars in our galaxy or so, so there's some stars that are not orbiting with the flow or some of them may have gone through and then looped back uh-huh because they they weren't going fast enough to escape the gravity of the galaxy so they could loop around. So in other words, we have no idea. <laughs> We're not sure. They're not sure how this happened. We don't know. Maybe that was the galaxy that caused the hole. But. When, when, they, when they made a graph of our galaxy and the velocities of the stars, that's where they called it uh, the, the Gaia sausage. To me, okay. it didn't really look like a sausage. But that's but what they were sometimes. Now, here's, here's the thing about the sausage. It made me think of the globular clusters. There's, this, this, there's a real puzzle in this. So this small galaxy, when it collided with our galaxy, if that's what happened. If that's what happened. We don't know for sure. We don't if know. If that's what happened, it turned it into mush and mixed it all up Just in like the galaxy. Just like a porridge of stars. However, think about the globular clusters again. They're passing around the center of the galaxy. Now, the globular clusters might have an orbital period of something around 100 million years. Yeah. But the age of our galaxy would be what? They would say 10, 10, billion. 10 12 billion or something like uh-huh. that. Uh-huh. And usually scientists think that globular clusters would be the same age as the galaxy that they're... It's a relatively good hypothesis. Yeah. Right. So if uh, a globular cluster has an orbital period of uh, 100 million years, that's uh, 10 to the 8th years, and the age of the galaxy is 10 billion years, Mm -hmm. that means that that globular cluster would pass through the galaxy, through the disk, twice each orbit. Hmm. And it would happen 200 times in the life of that globular cluster. Okay. 
how could that globular cluster still be spherical in shape? Intact after 200 passes through the galaxy. If one galaxy passing through turned it into mush and mixed it in with the galaxy, mm-hmm. how could these globular clusters still be spherical? It's like crashing a NASCAR 200 times and having it cross the finish line intact. Yeah, we got 150 of them uh, going through the galaxy twice in orbit, and they still look round. They still have their spherical shape which would suggest there's there's far less time involved in these schematics than is suggested. Less time or something else going on. There's something mystery. Some other mystery. But all of this gets to, we're not necessarily offering a solution. Heck, we don't know. The the important key point is to recognize that we see a hole, we see a chain of stars, we see stars going this direction, we see stars going that direction. Mm Mm-hmm. What lies behind that are theoretical explanations that are not entirely based on observation. If we're talking about something that may be millions of years or billions of years, we're talking about something that we cannot observe in the past. Right. And so what a lot of theoretical physicists and astronomers will do is, of course, rely on computer models to rebuild or reconstruct what they think happened. But, of course, with a computer model, you put data in. Mm -hmm. You have to presume a certain structure already to make a computer model of what will happen. So we're not criticizing the science. We're just saying that, 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 that a lot of what is being explained in the past is theoretical based on our best guess of how right. we think things work. Yeah, and so there's nothing wrong with scientists doing computer models. No, I, not I, at all. The computer models give us insight. Absolutely. But the problem is that the computer will only do what you Tell uh, it. program it to do. Right. <laughs> and right. and you, you put – so the programmer – puts his own assumptions into the computer program. Yeah. And so the scientist assumptions get worked out in the computer code. Right. So it ends up kind of looking like what you sort of hoped it would look like, right. more or less. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, and as you know, it, it's as in any discipline, not just science, but there's always the accepted paradigm. There's always the accepted model of the universe. And when you find data that might be contrary to the accepted model, you're going to have a hard time trying to get uh, your your views across. You're going to be labeled. Right. You know, you're going to have a have an issue. But let's put that on hold for just a second. I want to talk about one more structure of, of wonder that is going on in our own galaxy. We could sit here and talk about all day about the weirdness of our own galaxy. But you sent me an article uh, a while back about mountain ranges of stars in the Milky Way. What the heck? Yes, this is part of the things that the Gaia satellite has discovered because they've been able to get more uh, more resolution or more detailed uh, data mm-hmm. on the movement of the stars, their positions. And so they're, they're learning there's these structures in the galaxy that we, they're not sure what caused them. So, you so have they're, they're kind of, they seem to be something like ripples or temporary spirals or something that they're not sure how, where they came from. But essentially what you have is uh, data from the satellite that suggests stars are piled up like the Alps or, yeah. the, or the Rockies. Right. Uh, they're in a similar structure. They look like celestial mountain ranges, but the, the scientific explanation would be that some kind of energy has passed through a group of stars and caused the, caused the effect. So another, another wonderful mystery about our universe. Yeah, another thing that was suggested is that maybe the... Uh, the bar mm-hmm. is sort of flexing 
ah. like it's twisting. Our, our, our barred spiral, if the bar If the bar, in the bar is not totally flat, but it's sort of twisting and oscillating around mm. like a bridge is about to collapse, yes. then, yeah. then that could set things in motion around the, around the disk. So galaxies are full of active energy, aren't they? Act, there's things going on in the galaxy. Absolutely. We're so tiny we don't see it, but now we're beginning to be able to see more so scientists are bound to discover interesting things about And another galaxy. oddity that is commonly known, more commonly known is that the Earth inhabits what I think is called the Orion Arm, or in between the Orion Arm of the galaxy. Our galaxy has a few arms. But we are in a nice dust-free lane. The solar system inhabits a nice dust-free right. lane yeah. where it's not too bright, not too dusty, not too dark. And we basically, it's like getting a 50-yard line ticket at AT&T Stadium here in Arlington. That's right. You get the best seat in the house. It's a good seat in the galaxy. Yeah, and, right. and so is that just a coincidence that, that, that where we are as a planet in the solar system has such enormously clear views of the universe that we can see the stars from mountaintops, we can see the stars from distant, uh, distant, distant universe, distant galaxies, because of where we are. If we're any closer to any of these dust lanes, we don't see anything. We are blinded by dust and plasma and gas and light, and we can't see the universe. Right. So that's another remarkable thing that, that we have. So let's uh, switch gears here a little bit. So that's our galaxy. It's a barred spiral, mountain ranges of stars, sausages, holes, star trails, star <laughs> clusters. Uh, it's just... We, we haven't even scratched the surface. That's just our galaxy. Right. And there are estimates of two, three, four, five hundred billion galaxies in our known universe, which is just nuts. And if you want to get an idea that... So last month we talked about uh, Edwin Hubble outlining a basic, a basic schematic for galaxy shapes. Right. Spirals, barred spirals, ellipticals, uh, lenticulars... Um, various different shapes. It's a very simple pattern. It's called the tuning fork, Hubble's tuning mm-hmm. fork. It's really not that simple, though, because uh, I, I think I mentioned him last month. I don't know if I did or not, but there was a gentleman by the name of Halton Arp. Right. He was an astronomer that worked at, uh, worked at the Palomar uh, Observatory uh, that was run by Caltech, which is a 200-inch telescope, and then he also worked at Mount Wilson with the 60- and the 100-inch telescope. Um, but Halton was a, a maverick of... Uh, astronomers, among astronomers. He had some different theories. We're not going to try to iron out the theories. But one of his amazing contributions to astronomy was his keen eye for identifying galaxies that didn't fit in. Yes. That uh, we have the book called the the Arp Atlas of Peculiar Galaxies. It sounds like a a chapter from a Harry Potter novel or something. (laughs) The the magical world of fantastical beasts. Um, But it's 300 or so galaxies that don't fit anywhere on Hubble's easy chart schematic. Uh, there's, a, there's a different schematic I wanted to bring up. I won't go into it in great detail, but it's called the Divacul- I think it's a fr- French astronomer's name, the Divacoulier Revised Hubble Sandage System, or the VRHS, and it looks like a, a gourd. It looks like a football, and okay. there's a lot more. There's, a, there's standard shapes that go through the center of it, and then there's different variations of shapes that go around the center, and it's far more uh, complex, a little bit more um, detailed than Hubble's tuning fork. Oh, but but okay. I, I just mentioned that to say that classifying these things is is not neat and tidy. Yeah. That that if you look at if you go online and you look at Halton Arp's 
uh, peculiar galaxies. You can see these pictures. They're some of the most strange, unusual. Um, they're not spirals. They're not, uh, they're, they just don't fit a neat classification scheme. But they're all over the universe. So the Hubble uh, Deep Field that was shot in t- 1995 and then the, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field in 2004. Right. 3,000 galaxies in 1995, 10,000 galaxies in 2004 that no human eye had ever seen. And these were these were like... Uh, the, Very distant galaxies. They look yeah. like... Uh, they just... It, 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 what, what are these things? We've never seen... Nobody's ever laid eyes on them. So the, 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 the amazing thing is is that we have to study... All of these to understand the nature of what a galaxy is, because some of these are so non-spiral, it's right. it's it's off the charts. Yeah, Dan, you're talking about Halton Arp, and uh, he he's he's really good at discoveries that he's um, respected for more is about plasma physics, and uh, he did some good work in that. And but then he. That was earlier on in his career. Then later on, he became kind of blackballed and, and, and mistreated, I think, and not not treated fairly. Uh, you know, he was proposing ideas that were not were going against the standard thinking of scientists, and he wasn't treated right for that. Yeah, there ought to be freedom for scientists to buck the system a little bit, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that we can consider things more than one way. Right. It's not healthy when science can only look at things one way. Right, right. He was uh, denied telescope time at the Palomar Observatory at the 200-inch telescope because people thought his ideas were not worthy of being pursued. Whatever you think about I know that ARP is a name that divides astronomers even to this day. When you mention his name, people are like, don't talk about him, or yeah, that guy's a genius. Right. Um, We're not going to try to solve the controversy today, but but the, the main point, I think, that is important to know is his contribution to science was not mainstream, yeah. but yet there's still data to be gathered. It's still information to be learned about the information that he did record. Right. So his work prompted others later yeah. to get better photographs and to study some of those examples of those, some of those galaxies and quasars, and now we have better information about them. Right. But I want to mention two weird ones that he is most known for that stirred up the pot of the astronomical community. Right. Without getting into the great details or trying to solve the problem, uh, there is one galaxy in particular, New Galactic Catalog, which is NGC. You see a lot of objects that are NGC. Yeah. Uh, this, this particular oddball did not actually make it into ARP's cal- galaxies, his catalog, but it nevertheless started a controversy that it's kind of dead today, but it kind of got swept under the rug and it just stirred up the pot. It's, it was an unconventional find and an unconventional assumption about galaxies. Mm-hmm. So NGC 4319, okay, basically it was a very bright galaxy that had a next-door neighbor quasar. So a quasar right. is just a quasi-stellar object. They're super bright, uh, and we don't quite understand the full nature of what a quasar is. But the radical controversy, so, so you have the, the galaxy itself, and then sort of next to it, in terms of a visual photograph, you have this small quasar. So, like, like, so ARP, what he suggested, was that the quasar came out of the galaxy. Yes. But the problem is, if that's true, the difficulty was that one galaxy, and the, the galaxy was redshifted much different than the quasar. Yes. So if they came out 
what was weird, if, if the quasar came out of the galaxy, then that quasar is several, I don't know exactly the distance, but it is a billion or more light years away from that galaxy according to the redshift. Right, so it raised questions about redshifts and then science started looking into redshifts. Yes, so what happened with this particular galaxy was that the telescope, as telescope technology got better and better, people tried to focus in on there and what ARP found was this little filament that went from the galaxy, or at least it looks like there's a filament, that went from the galaxy to the quasar making it look like the, gal- the quasar came out of the galaxy. Now, there's a lot of raging debate in terms of whether that was a real filament. Was that just an anomaly? Was that just a fluke? Uh, what was that? Is it really there? Was that a photographic anomaly? What right. was that? So today's scientists don't believe that they're really connected, but that's a that's, long story. Yeah, that's a long story. But that is just one controversy that, that, that he started, the, the idea that do quasars pop out of uh, of, of their host galaxies, and if those if the quasar and the galaxy are together, as ARP suggested, that would radically overturn the paradigm of modern astronomy and how yeah. we measure distances. Yeah. Uh, we're, but we're not going to solve the controversy today. There's another one that's even more dramatic mm-hmm. than NGC 40. You can look up NGC 4319 and see the images for yourself. Uh, it, it's, it's pretty cool. And you kind of go, hmm. And it makes you really think about it. Uh, the, other, yeah. the other galaxy is NGC 7603. Now, this is a Seifert Type 1 galaxy. Seifert is basically a, a galaxy that's super bright. Seiferts are very bright, very active galaxies. And uh, NGC 7603 has a quasar right next to it, again. But, but, right. but even a more dramatic filament than uh, the other galaxy. And so... These are the, the question raged during the 70s and 80s. Were these quasars coming out of these galaxies? And if that was the case, then wow, we have to over, we have to go back and redo the math. But like you said, Wayne, he was he was treated unfairly for his conclusions and denied telescope time right. uh, because of, of of these things. But but you can you can look through the wonderful weird world of some of these galaxies. They don't look anything like a spiral. They just look like blobs of light, but they have the distinct color. Of, of a spiral galaxy, but they're in no way, shape, or form uh, the traditional Hubble spirals that we see. Right. Yeah. Well, a lot of a lot of ARP's galaxies, though, while they're, some of them do look like they're interacting to some degree, mm-hmm. some of them are isolated, and yes. there's no the interaction explanations uh, really come short of trying to explain the forces that shape these things necessarily. Yes. So again, what we're going back to is a lot of theoretical and not necessarily observational astronomy. We are trying to reconstruct the past of how these galaxies look like, kind of like evolutionary theory in some sense. How do we, how do we reconstruct fossils? How do we reconstruct the strata? How do we reconstruct the geology? Right. So it, it, there is a kind of parallel to evolution in a way, is that in biological evolution they believe that life on Earth has a common ancestor. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of things coming from a common ancestor... It's actually used in, even in astronomy sometimes. Yeah, it, there's a but, ver- but this is assuming a history that we can't be sure of. That's correct. And it's interesting, though, to me, Wayne, I noticed three things in, in my course of study over with apologetics, just, just me obser- observing. So you have, the, you have the long, slow, gradual development of life mm-hmm. with Charles Darwin. Right. You have a long, slow, gradual development of our universe over 14 billion years or whatever the case is. Right. And then um, think, of the, think of the modern literary, cre- literary criticism of the Gospels. 
Why is Mark considered first? Well, primarily, and I'm being very general, I'm not being scholarly about this, but primarily Mark is viewed as primitive. And by the time you get to John, you have this exalted view of Jesus that allegedly Mark didn't have. So what do you have, and even in the Gospels, that they develop from a small point, and, you know, Mark writes, and then by the time you get to John, oh, we've, we've added things. But the underlying theory of, I think, a lot of biblical criticism is that the Gospels, like the universe and like biological life, developed slowly over time, and then over time people were just making up stuff and adding things. Right. So by the time you get to John, he's, he's like a, uh, it's like a Lord of the Rings fairy tale, Gandalf, highly exalted view of Jesus that Mark didn't, allegedly didn't have. I don't think Jesus would have looked at it that way at all. No, no. He had 12 disciples, and they all had their contribution. They did their own contribution. They wrote their own way. Right. A lot of people heard Jesus. Yeah, right. absolutely. There were a lot of people who knew the things that happened during his life and ministry. Right. And so if somebody would have written something that wasn't correct... It could have easily it been could verified. Have been easily refuted by the people right. who lived and saw Jesus and heard him. And I think the biggest one of the things for me is the absence of that kind of criticism from the first and second centuries. If these if these things were not true, we would have contemporary surviving contemporary manuscripts of something that would that would indicate. Right, and so you don't get the other gospels and the other manuscripts. Until after much, the apostles much later. died, much much later. After the apostles died, then you started getting these peop- other people mm-hmm. that have that make claims of being connected to the apostles when they weren't. Right. And right. those writings, like the Gospel of Thomas, for example, are, it's not like the other gospels. Not at all. It, it's it's a fanciful thing that doesn't even make sense compared to the others. Well, we just passed the 50th anniversary of Apollo, as you know, and there are still astronauts and people alive. Mm-hmm. That would have that can attest to the reality of those missions. There right. are still men alive. Really? I've shaken the hands of one of them, uh, Charlie Duke, who have walked on the moon. Yeah, I am. I am. I'm never going to wash my hand. No, I'm not kidding. I have. And there's still people even today who think we didn't go to the moon. Exactly. Then and they, there's absolutely no credibility. They're not. They're just. They're, there's no credibility to what they're saying. But the point is, so we're 50 years out from Apollo. Right. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of Jesus and the tradition he cites in 1 Corinthians 15, he's 20 years, right. 25 years, yeah. less than half the time we are from Apollo. Right. He's making these statements about Jesus and the resurrection that if they were not true, I mean, Paul was a rabbinic Jew. If, if anybody wanted to excoriate Paul for what he believed, that was the time to do it. There was the time to do it. They had the Pharisees. They had the Sadducees. They had scribes. Paul could have and, been... And here's, the, here's an important point, Dan. At the time of Paul, when he wrote those and he said those things, there were Roman records of these things. Absolutely. Roman records. Right, we right. We don't have those records anymore. We, we have people who wrote about those records who read yeah, them. Right. We have Pliny and Tacitus that speak in general terms about, yeah. about later what happened later to the Christians. Um, but you have... You have uh, these gospels were circulated. Every existent manuscript that we have, gospel manuscript that we have, that has a title page, every one of them have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on the gospels to which they are attributed. So there's right. no mixing of the names. There's no anonymous uh, gospel. There's no blanks in the gospels. Uh, they are all who they say they are. Every manuscript that we have with a gospel front page has Matthew, has Mark, has Luke, has John. Now Hebrews is anonymous. 
<laughs> we, we yeah, do, we don't know. We about don't that know. One. That is truly anonymous. Right. But but to make the claim that uh, that, that the gospels were anonymous, or that John didn't write John, or Matthew didn't write Matthew, or Mark didn't write Mark, or whatever, uh, you you basically you have to say that well. If if that's not John's writing, well, then are you saying that you would would you recognize John's writing? You know what the the, the scholarly consensus. I always I'm always amazed by this because the one thing I, that interests me is that here are historians that maybe skeptical people or historians that don't believe making the claim that all of this stuff was not based on eyewitness testimony, as if to discredit the scriptures. But the 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 conundrum for me there is that well, you're not an eyewitness. And you are 2,000 years removed from what right. you're talking about. Yeah. So how can a non-eyewitness two millennia removed from the events in question actually have a better perspective on where these came from than the people that were writing them? Right. We have church tradition. Uh, we have the early church. We have the, the, the testament to, to, to all of that. Um, but, but that bespeaks of the longevity and the truth. And, of course, what Jesus says of himself in Luke 24, 27, that all of the scriptures from Moses and the prophets speak of who he is. He is the light of the world, right. and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness didn't master it. The darkness didn't overcome it. The right. darkness doesn't understand it. And that's still true. And that is still true. And so like quasars and, and weird things in the galaxy and weird stars and weird galaxies and distorted, I kind of like the Seifert galaxy. I kind of like that Alps, Arps galaxy collection as a kind, of a, mm-hmm. a kind of a celestial portrait of the church. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here are the people that don't yeah. fit in yeah. in society. Here are the people that don't measure up to the standard of yeah. of spiral. Right here's here's right. The, here's the way in which here's misfits. Here's a tadpole galaxy. Here's some mice galaxies. Here's here's yeah. A, we're kind of rubbing the the world the wrong way. Yeah, and, and 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 so I think a lot of ways Halton Arp's story is very countercultural, and it has very. I don't know if Arp was a Christian or not. I don't honestly know, but his his. His story in the astronomical community in the 70s and 80s is replete with gospel overtones in terms of, here's my message, here's what I think, here's what I see. You all deny me telescope time, you won't let me, you know, he's published, but he's mocked, he's ridiculed. And in fact, one of his biographers says that Harp, Arp, uh, bore the cross of crack pottery. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that they thought he was a crackpot, but he had to endure, and he endured, he endured it patiently. He bore... Whether he was a Christian or not, I see the parallel. He bore the cross of being counterintuitive mm-hmm. in the midst of uh, uh, paradigms that were going the other direction. But if you know, so, yeah. So even if he wasn't correct in all his ideas, he he had a good effect on astronomy. Absolutely, to motivate people to do more research. Well, and I have this wonderful quote from Copernicus. I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it here, but uh, you know, before he died, he was asked. He was he wrote to the Pope and said, "Look." You know, can you blame me for not wanting to? I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, anybody that suggests the Earth is moving is going to get hissed off the stage. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and and your favorites, Johannes Kepler and Tycho Brahe, were had had a foot in both worlds. Right, they, they were trying to work out the idea that, you know, a lot of people will blame the church for holding on to spheres and and perfect circles. Mm-hmm. That, that wasn't the church's idea; it was Aristotle's idea. Yeah. We were holding on to Aristotelian scholasticism. We held on to Aristotle yeah. too much, too. The Pope didn't make up these circles, per se. Right. Aristotle was the one who suggested but did not do any kind of observational experiments. Everything right. is a perfect circle. Uh, so 1,500 years of perfect circles in a stable earth, Copernicus, Copernicus comes along and says, you know, maybe the earth's moving. Mm-hmm. Who's going to believe you? Go outside and do the experiment. Are you moving? 
you know, when, when there was an earthquake, we can tell when the earth is moving. The earth is not moving. So there's a radical paradigm shift. That it seems so counterintuitive and nuts to people to think that the earth would be moving. Absolutely. But we can't, we can't so easily figure out if earth is moving or not. Mm-mm. So Kepler and Bra and others really put more work into this and, and figured out the truth about, I think, what the way the planets are moving and so on. So it took time to establish a good, some good science about this, right? Time. So we're sitting here in a coffee shop, Dan, and to me it seems like I'm sitting still, but I'm not. <laughs> so let, let, me, let me give you some numbers of how we're moving. Okay. Here's how we're really moving and when th- we're sitting in a coffee shop. And this is going on in our galaxy, so we can, right. we can so connect this Our in. sun orbits the center of the Milky Way. Uh, at about 26,000 light years from the center of the Milky Way. Okay. And so this means our sun is moving in a circular orbit at about 225 kilometers per second, or 140 miles per second around the galaxy. So what does that translate in miles per hour? Well, it's very fast. (laughs) So let's... Now, our galaxy is moving... At a speed of about 552 kilometers per second, or 343 miles per second. Wow. Uh, with a local group of galaxies. Yes. And we talked about groups of galaxies. Once. And the Great Attractor, I think yes. we talked about that. And, yes. uh, so we're really moving very fast, And then, if whether we feel it or not. And if you're at the equator, you're, you're zipping around on the Earth's axis going at 1,000 miles an hour, the Earth's spin. Yes, it, that's another way we're moving. So, so. it's just... Moving, 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 moving. But five centuries ago, no, we were we were centered, and it was obvious that we were not moving. And I think uh, I think any time you, you know you suggest a shift in a scientific paradigm, you're going to encounter trouble. Um, but I think Arp's story is a wonderful testament to uh, persevering in being countercultural and, and persevering and holding on to the truth, persevering through history, as Hebrews says, we we have so great a cloud of witnesses before us. Um, one last weird galaxy I want to close out with, and it's kind of famous because of this past spring, is the galaxy of Messier object M87. And it looked like a blob to Charles Messier. It just looked like a globular blob. Um, but ARP, it's ARP item number 152. That's the galaxy from which the black hole was photographed. Oh, uh, The peripheral yes. around the black hole. But that, uh, that galaxy in 1918... Um, they had done some observations. In fact, uh, at the Lick Observatory, Herbert Curtis observed a jet coming out of M87. So the idea there in 1918 was that, that galaxies could throw stuff out. And, uh, but anyway, through persisting in looking at the oddity of something like M87, why is this jet coming out, has landed us 100 years later, almost 100 years later, or just over 100 years later, in discovering the wonderful oddities and enigmas of the black hole. So Mr. Curtis's discovery of the jet, a century later, we discover a black hole. And, of course, in 1960, people didn't believe in black holes. People thought it was as nutty as a fruitcake to think of a black hole. Um, But M87 was on ARP's list, uh, and it's also not your typical galaxy because of its its weird shape and its its jets that come out of it so the lesson i think for for all of this is that the gospels are going to be countercultural. 
science is weird, our galaxy is weird, our universe is bizarre. And so the scientific paradigms, we can become comfortable with them. It can seem obvious to us. Oh, a galaxy is just a spiral, you know, blah, blah, blah. We settle comfortably into a mindset. Uh, we go with the flow. We go with the culture. It's easy to do that. Right. It, it's far more difficult, especially when your career, like ARPS was, at risk. Right. Or with the disciples, that your lives are at risk for writing and publishing and proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is. Yeah, uh, and you know, this is sometimes true of Christians and other uh, people of other backgrounds today. Because mm-hmm. science tends to go along with an atheist, atheistic mindset. It does. And it's too committed to that and doesn't allow for other views enough. And I think that, you know, when you read Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God mm-hmm. uh, and the skies proclaim his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. The, the whole discipline of astronomy, the expenditures and, and the, our ability to read the universe right. is a testament to the legibility of the universe, which is exactly what the psalm is saying, that we can read knowledge and can understand, quote, speech, the speech of mathematics, uh, in what we're observing. But I think the glory of God also is another thing because if you, you go back to Moses, when Moses wants to see God's glory in Exodus, right? And I think it was 32 or 33, Moses says, show, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And yeah. God says, well, no man can see my face and live. Hmm. And then he tells Moses what he will do. Look, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand. And when I pass by, I will remove my hand. And of course... And then you can see my back or whatever that aspect of God was. But I find that to be something like astronomy today. God has put us in the cleft of earth and allows his glory to pass by. But he also shields us from a great deal of things that we are not capable of seeing or capable of understanding. So part of that glory is the joy of discovery. Because, I mean, we, get Nobel, we give Nobel Prizes to people just for discovering things, right? Yeah. So part of the joy of God's glory is discovering what's out there, but also a humble recognition that there's no way we are going to see or know everything about this universe. And so even the concept right. that, that secular science can come up with a theory of everything is, is beyond the pale of, of what is even possible. We can know something— but we can't know it exhaustively. We just know bits and pieces. Right. We, we are on the tip, the very tip. I mean, we've, we've seen a lot with our telescopes. But just, just that point of view does not give us the perspective of omniscience. Yes. I, I think. But sometimes we let that creep into our heads and we think, oh, we can see that far out there. We can see all those galaxies. We have a God's eye view of the universe. But a lot of these secular cosmologies will, will posit a sort of picture a god's eye picture of the universe you see those cones of of gradual big bang cosmology where we're looking at the universe from the outside wayne you know this we've not even seen our solar system from the outside we've not even seen our galaxy from the outside yeah you know these are all models and all theories and all drawings so we are it's cool to know um but we're not going to know everything simply because that's just the nature of how god has created the universe we can know we can we can know uh what we need to know but uh, we can know in part, like Paul says. Right. But n- now we look through a mirror. We see through a glass darkly. That's a telescope. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but, but now we know in part. But then, of course, Paul's talking about himself before Jesus. But I think that's still the same with creation. Now we know in part. Yeah. But, but one day we will know 
far more than we do now. Uh, right. But we still, because we're finite creatures, we're not going to know everything. But that's cool. That's why we will be with Jesus forever, because it'll take that long to figure out everything. That's all right. So we can keep discovering. We should all, always keep in mind our limitations. Right, right. So the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not master it, but we keep trying. We keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> but I think for Christians, I think, and for anybody, you know, the idea of, of like Halt and Arp or the disciples, uh, the world may be against us. The world may disagree with us. Uh, it may be countercultural. We may lose our positions of prestige or whatever but at least we're we're passionate about what we believe is true and you try to live that out as best you can even though you might not achieve everything at least you know you're as the catechism says uh the chief end of man is to do what to glorify god and enjoy him forever and so thank you wayne this has been a great episode we hope that uh it has encouraged you to 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 glorify god and enjoy him forever as well and uh next month we chit-chatted about a topic what do you think did you like it? You like the idea? What the Bible says about stars. What the Bible says about stars. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, so next month in October, we're going to be talking about what does the Bible, what is a star in the Bible? In the Bible. All right. How does the heavens and the earth go together? How does it all fit together? How does it all fit together? Yeah. And that's what we're trying to figure out. So maybe we've given you an idea about that. Maybe we've completely failed. I don't know. Well, so <laughs> I guess the listeners can be the judge. That's right. Uh, all right, Wayne, we will see you next time on Good Heavens. <laughs>